So grace, it's a word that's perhaps all too familiar to us. So we name babies grace or gracie. Loan documents refer to what? They refer to grace periods. Employees may stay late at work so they can be in their boss's good graces. We refer to elegant women as what? As full of grace. Or those popular figures who have what? They have fallen from grace. Even companies use grace in their advertising. So I don't know if you know Jaguar, the, the car manufacturer, the luxury manufacturer. They, they had a slogan Jaguar did for years. Space, pace, and grace. Friends, what does that word grace even mean? Does it refer to clothing and style? Does it refer, as many use it, to, to beauty and to elegance? Is it to be thought highly of, to be thought well of, to maintain one's good favor as in to live in a, quote, state of grace? Or is it a kind of prayer, right, to say grace? Though the word that may appear just ubiquitous to us, it's actually not to many of the cultures around the world. So years ago, there was a a British conference on comparative religions, and experts from around the world were gathering to discuss what was unique about Christianity. And they began to eliminate possibilities. So the incarnation. While other religions had various versions of, of their gods appearing in human form, not exactly the same, but similar the resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of, of those who have returned from the dead. And the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis happened to wander into the room. And he, he, he heard a bit of the conversation and he said, what's the rumpus all about? That's a good word we don't use anymore, rumpus. What's the rumpus all about, C.S. Lewis said. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing you know, Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, and they were confused, and he just chimed right in, and he said, oh, it's simple. It's grace. Grace is a uniquely Christian idea. So the Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish Pharisees with their Torah, the Muslim code of law, all offer a way of life by which we merit and by which we receive approval through our own efforts. Only Christianity is uniquely marked and defined by grace. But friends, what is it? Why do we actually need it? Where do we find it? And what comfort is there in it? Well, that's what I want us to be thinking about this morning as we return in our study to the New Testament book of Titus, the New Testament book of Titus. Let me invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning, verses 11 through 15. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, don't fret. You can find our text on page 998, page 998 of the red Bibles we provide and the seatbacks before you. Now, if you're just visiting with us, maybe missed the earlier messages or are trying to remember those earlier messages throughout the summer, uh, at some point in Christianity, the gospel came to the morally decadent island of Crete, this Mediterranean island, and, and it began to take root, but it appears that Cretan culture was influencing the church, so to speak, more than the church was influencing 
Cretan culture because we learn that there are all these false teachers in the churches, 116, those who what? They profess to know God, so lip service to God, but they deny him, Paul says, by their works, which is why Titus is to be what? As we thought about earlier, a model of good works, Titus 2.7, and he's supposed to teach the various pockets of the congregation, the older men and older women and younger men and younger women and so forth. He's to teach them what a life of good works looks like. Verse 10, so that, chapter 2.10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, Titus' Titus's opponents had separated belief from behavior. They had separated doctrine from duty. They had separated faith from life. And yet Paul is helping us to see that belief and behavior in the Christian life, those things are inseparable. You can't you know, sort of put a wedge, draw a line in between them. Good works by us are always the product of God's work in us. So with that in mind, follow along as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. We read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, or while we wait, for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, so here we've come to the first of two of the great theological peaks, so to speak, in Titus. So if our passage is K2, right, we're going to get to Everest in Titus 3, 4 to 7. But notice how our passage closes. Paul says, declare these things. Now that word that the ESV translates declare is actually the same word that opened the section earlier in 2.1. It's that word teach. And so 2, 1 to 15 form their own unit, bookended by this idea of what is to be taught. And Titus is to teach how we're to live, 2, 1 to 10, because how Christ has lived for us, 2, 11 to 15. Notice that word for that opens our passage, verse 11. And verse 11 to 14, therefore, provides the ground, right? The reason for all the commands that came in 2, 1 to 10. Now, normally, if you're familiar with Paul's sort of customary practice, normally Paul begins with the indicatives of the gospel, right? All the things God has done in Christ. And only then he moves to the imperatives, how we're to live for Christ, But notice here, Paul flips the order. He gives all the imperatives in 2, 1 to 10, and then he follows up with the indicative. Because, brothers and sisters, the point's not the order. The key thing is the relationship between the two. Does God work in us because we first worked for him? Or are our works simply the overflow of his work? And that relationship between God's works and between our works, friends, that's what grace is all about. 
Because 11 to 14 are actually one sentence in Greek, which the ESV helps you see just by putting in a lot of commas, which sometimes makes it tricky to read, but you capture it's, it's all one sentence. And the grammatical subject is right there at the start of verse 11, the grace of God. Friends, this whole paragraph is about grace. It's about grace. And what does it teach us? I think simply this. The grace that saved us sanctifies us today and secures us for tomorrow. So if you want to think of a one-sentence summary of our passage, I'd throw it out like that. The grace that saved us sanctifies us today and secures us for tomorrow. And notice in that summary sentence, what do we have? We have the past, right? We got the present and we have the future. Grace that saved, past. Grace that sanctifies, present. Grace that secures for the future. And Paul highlights the sort of past, present, future when he refers to the two appearings. I don't know if you caught that. The two appearings of Christ. Verse 11, we read the grace of God has appeared. Past tense. And then in verse 12, he's going to turn to the godly lives we are to live, what, in the present age in which our lives are marked. He goes on to say in verse 14, by what? By good works. We're to be zealous for good works. So that's all about the present. And then in verse 13, he lifts our eyes up to what? To the appearing, there you see it again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Future. Now because Paul jumps in and out of these sort of two appearings, we're going to work through the text more thematically than sequentially. So I wanted to give you sort of a flow of the text so you understand how it's functioning, but we're going to work through it more thematically than sequentially. And putting it all together, I think this passage is teaching us at least three truths as it comes to grace. And these truths really lie at the core of Christianity, at the heart of our hope. So if you've come and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this message is going to get right to the heart of what we as Christians believe. First, that grace comes in a person. Second, that grace comes for a purpose. And third, that grace comes with a promise. So it comes in a person first, it comes for a purpose second, and it comes with a promise third. All right, so that'll serve as the points first. Grace comes in a person. Grace comes in a person. So it seems in Crete there was all kinds of what we would say sort of easy believism, and that easy believism was passing as Christianity. So again, 116, many professed to know God, but their lives weren't lived for God. And even in the Bible Belt, I know that belt is, is tightening, so to speak, right? Christianity is less common, and yet still, I think many of us would know what that looks like. Those who profess God with their lips, but seem to deny him with their lives. And yet, the corresponding ditch is that all we do as Christians is talk about right living. And the Christian life simply becomes about rote obedience, right? Do this, don't do that. And we can drift into what? Into legalism, But in our passage, Paul just cuts a straight path between those two ditches of easy believism and legalism. A straight path right right through those two ditches. 
He says a godly lifestyle is grounded in grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Now that word appeared in verse 11, which shows up again in verse 13, that was a word commonly used in Greek literature for the sudden arrival of a god or some other hero who would come to rescue his people. And it may be one of the reasons why the Bible talks a lot more about Christ's appearing than it does Christ's coming. Now it's getting at the same idea, but the language typically used in the Bible is Christ's appearing because I think it's drawing off this sort of secular notion that a God could come and save his people. And the Bible's saying, yes, he has, and that's Jesus. All right, we'll get there in a moment. Okay, so that word appeared is being referenced to Christ. Paul saying grace appeared in a person. Again, not Zeus, not Artemis. He's saying, but Jesus. And Paul makes that explicit in verse 13 or in Titus 3, 4 when he writes uh, in Titus 3, 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Paul's referring to Jesus, to his incarnation, to his crucifixion, to his resurrection, because grace comes in a person. And friends, that's not how many understand Christianity. Maybe it's not how you understand Christianity. Many would define Christianity as what? As a set of rules or as an ethical code or some constellation of of theological convictions, a, a kind of creedal formula. And friends, Christianity has elements of those things. But if we're to understand Christianity rightly, we must first understand that Christianity is not simply a set of rules. It's not some ethical code of conduct. It's not even a particular dogmatic formulation. Christianity is about a person. It is about a person. It is fundamentally about the grace that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, which means you will never truly understand Christianity. It will always be a caricature, right? Some demented distortion until you understand exactly who Christ is. Because Christianity does not call us to embrace a plan or to embrace a system. Again, it calls us to embrace what? A person. A person. And who is this person? Who is this Jesus? Well, we learn in our text, Jesus is nothing short of the very glory of God himself. For notice how Paul speaks of Jesus in verse 13. He refers to him as what? As our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So right there in verse 13, Paul is making an unmistakable, unambiguous, unequivocal claim that Christ is God. He is divine. Jesus is both God and Savior, right? God in the flesh. Now, Jesus' deity doesn't alone rest on this one verse, but this verse, I think, does make explicit what is implicit throughout the New Testament. Because every time we read that Jesus possesses the attributes of God, or does the work of God, or receives the worship and allegiance that is only due God, It is because he is God. That's why. And notice again the verb used to describe Christ's coming. Verse 11. He appeared. 
It doesn't say Christ was created. It doesn't say he came into existence. It says he appeared. What was previously not visible is now visible, which implies that Christ, what, he already existed. He is the preexistent one. He is the one who has become, though, Emmanuel, right? God with us. No other religion makes a claim like this about its founder. Christianity is unique in this way. It says that grace comes to us in a person. So notice how right from the start, Paul grounds the godly life not in a believer's resolution, not in his will, not simply in some cultivation of proper habits, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we always have to start. So grace comes in a person, but I want you to secondly see grace comes for a, uh, for a purpose. Second, grace comes for a purpose. And this actually really gets to the heart of verses 11 to 14, really the heart of our passage. Now, I don't know about you and your relationships with friends or a spouse, but I often do things that entirely puzzle my wife. Sometimes they puzzle even me. So I have this tendency to brush my teeth, and then I go rummage late at night in the pantry for food. Or I grab six paper towels in order to accomplish what one simply could have done. Or I have this tendency to trim my beard right after my wife has cleaned the bathroom sink. And as she reminded me yesterday, I have this annoying habit of chewing yogurt. Don't exactly know why I do that. Kind of masticate it with my teeth. And when I do it, all of a sudden my wife gives me that look. She just stares at me and it's like, seriously, it's yogurt. Like you don't need to chew it. Right? I do all kinds of things for which I don't have, it appears, very good reasons. But friend, I want you to see that God is not like that. God is not like us in this way. Everything God does has a reason. It has a purpose. Nothing random, nothing haphazard, nothing arbitrary. And when it comes to grace, Paul highlights God has at least two purposes. But I think two specifically that he highlights here. The first purpose is salvation. And the second purpose is transformation. So the purpose of grace is first what to save us. And then secondly, to transform us. So let's first think about this purpose in salvation. This purpose in salvation. Paul writes, verse 11, The grace of God has appeared, what bringing salvation for all people. Now that's actually a purpose statement. A little harder to see in our English text. But Paul's saying grace appeared in order to bring about salvation. So what brings about salvation to mankind? God's grace. That's it. Salvation isn't earned by effort. Salvation isn't merited by our own labor. Salvation is not the reward of a righteous life. Salvation is a result of grace and grace alone. And so here Paul really strikes that final nail into the coffin of our own self-righteousness. Because we like to think that we can earn God's favor. If we do just a bit more of this, if we do just a bit less of that, we think we can turn God's frown and we think we can perhaps turn it into a smile. 
we like to think that we can win God over. And so maybe we show up at church after not having been at church for weeks or months or years. Or maybe we go buy a new Bible and think, all right, I'm going to get serious now. Or maybe we seek to kind of curb some bad habit. And we try to work our way back into God's good graces, as we might say. And you know, we actually, as much as we won't admit it, we actually like the system Because not only does it give us something to do, but it gives us a sense of control. For once we have done our part, of course, what does it mean? It means now God has to do his part. God has to save. And we turn God into and make him our own debtor. I wonder if you know what that's like. And maybe if I could, I'll just speak just to the youth in the room for a moment because you might be young here and maybe your parents taught you that song Amazing Grace and you may have sung it a hundred times and yet you may have just simply made assumptions about grace all your life. You've never really thought about what that word means. You know, as a kid, when I did something wrong, I always thought, okay, at the end of the day, I've got to make sure I pray to God and I didn't grow up in a religious home. I didn't have Christian parents. Nobody was telling me to do anything. But probably like you and like the other 7 billion people that live in the world, I just assumed that if I was going to have favor with God, I had to do something to earn it. That's how we think. But I want you to see if you're young and you've never thought about grace, or maybe you're visiting and you're not a believer and you've never thought about grace, whether it's the first time or whether or not you've made assumptions all your life, grace is a gift. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is not just being treated better than we deserve. Grace is receiving the exact opposite of what we deserve. We like to think we can save ourselves by sort of pulling up on those proverbial bootstraps But even, friends, when those straps are made of the finest religious leather, we can't do it. They snap every time. Biblical grace is everything for nothing to those who deserve nothing. That's grace. And that's what makes Christianity so unique. That this is the grace that God offers. Notice To all people, right? Jesus isn't just some provincial backwater deity. All people is what we read. Salvation for all, young and old, right? Men and women, boys and girls, whether or not you're from Africa or for Asia, the Americas or, I don't know, Antarctica, like whatever it is. You could be a convict. You could be one who sings in the choir. All of us need grace. We need grace, And nobody is left out. The offer of grace is made available to all. That's what verse 11 is getting at. So those who had no standing in Roman society, like the slaves mentioned right back in verses 9 and 10. Think of how they would hear this. Even those who had no standing in Roman society could have eternal standing with God. And friends, that is Wonderful news. That is beautiful news. 
There is no one that is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, and there is no one so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. Right? I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will what? He will be saved, John 10, 9. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, 12. Because nobody is outside the reach of God's grace, and nobody is outside the offer of God's grace. And whereas the purpose of this grace is salvation, notice the means of this grace is substitution. It's Jesus, verse 14, who what? Who gave himself for us. Or you could, you could translate that for the sake of us. Or even in the place of us. Right? Salvation by means of substitution. And that right there, too, gets at the heart of the gospel. Christ sacrificed for sinners. Salvation through substitution resulting in what? Redemption. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. You know, this is actually what we've been singing a lot about this morning, and maybe you picked it up. But if you, if you got your worship guide, just open it up. Look at page seven. We sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And I was just struck by how much verse three picks up these themes. If you've got your worship guide, look there. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Verse three. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners, right? There's substitution. In the place of, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. More language, right? Redemption. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory Grace unmeasured, love untold. You know, I think in that hymn, the, the hymn writer Matt Boswell, he's just picking up what Paul picks up so clearly here in Titus 2 because Paul knows what Jesus himself said, Mark 10, 45, or Matthew 20, 28, right? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and what? Give his life as a ransom, for many. You know, this redemption language is the language of slavery, where one paid a redemption price in order to set a slave free. Paul's helping us see in our slavery to sin, only the cost of Christ's blood, right? His death for us, that alone can set us free, right? Christ would pay a debt he did not owe. Because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And that's Christianity. The beauty of salvation through substitution leading to redemption. And again, maybe you've, you've heard that message a thousand times. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Don't presume on this grace. If you are hearing my voice and you have not 
rested alone in the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. If you are for some reason flimsily holding on to a notion that you have a righteousness that God is somehow going to be happy with and satisfied by, just pitch that entirely. Look to Christ, rest in Christ, trust in him alone. He alone can save. Believe upon him and turn from your sin. But I want you to secondly notice the purpose of grace. It is salvation, yes, but it's not just that. It's also transformation. Now, throughout the years, there's a, a common controversy that kind of resurfaces. And in sometimes it's presented a bit like this, right? Christianity is simply confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. And that's the beginning and the end of the gospel message. Which begs the question, what role, if any, does obedience play in the life of a believer? Can one have genuine faith if it doesn't seem that there's much genuine fruit? And some would say, yes, they can. We want to always separate salvation from discipleship. That's what some would say. And that was sort of known as the the lordship salvation debates of the 1980s and 90s. More recently, it's resurfaced kind of in past years as the contemporary grace movement. And that movement would what? Emphasize justification. God declaring us righteous in Christ. In such a way, though, that sanctification, following after Christ, was ignored, if not rejected, So whatever name you want to give to it, I just want you to note that our text deals a kind of death blow to any theology that separates faith and repentance. It deals a death blow to any theology that separates trusting trusting, uh, in God from following after God. This says you can have Jesus as your Savior and never yet bow to him as Lord. Because the grace that saves us, notice verse 12, this grace that saves us, what? It trains us. Biblical grace puts us in a classroom and teaches us two things. Negatively, we're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And positively, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In other words, Paul's saying there is no salvation without genuine transformation. Or as James would put it, right, faith works. So the grace of salvation leads us both to deny something on the one hand and to be devoted to something on the other hand. Right? We're to renounce, this is the denial part, what we renounce ungodliness and worldly, pras- and worldly passions. And I just wonder, my Christian friend, if that in any way describes you. As you think about your life over the last day, week, couple months, is your life marked by renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions? Or does that describe you maybe just years ago? Or maybe just when you first made a profession of faith? I wonder if you've learned in any ways to make peace with the world. You've maybe declared a kind of truce with sin. Maybe you think, yeah, you know, I recognize 
um, that I used to get drunk, I, I used to get high, and I got rid of all that stuff. But hey, you know, the gospel's about grace. It's not about legalism. So if I stumble back and I kind of wander into those waters again, it's not really a big deal. Everyone just needs to relax and calm down. Or maybe it's in the things you consume, the kind of entertainment you consume. Or maybe it's in the way you use your words, the way now anger more readily comes out of your mouth. Or gossip drips like poison from your lips. Maybe it's in the way you use your money. You know, At one point, you might have prioritized God's kingdom in your own stewardship. But, you know, hey, life it got complicated, it got expensive, now you have an $800 car payment every month, and there's just not space for the kingdom of God in the same way. And you're like, God will understand. He's gracious. There are a million ways that we can make peace, so to speak, with the world. But grace trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, Two, in the words of 1 Peter 2.11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which what? Which war against your soul. So yes, we're called to do that. And sadly, for some Christians, holiness, well, that's kind of all it is. And maybe it's just reduced to whether or not you wear a one-piece bathing suit and avoid the Barbie movie, right? I don't know. But notice we're not merely to put off something, but we're to put on something such that we, what, positively live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Because, friends, we can say no to the world without ever saying yes to Christ. That's actually a little too easy for some of us. You know, the Pharisees were masters of this, saying no to the world and also saying no to Christ. And the worst forms of kind of fundamentalism. They could tell you a hundred things you absolutely have to avoid with degrees of separation, but they never seem to positively get to what godliness and righteousness look like. Paul says we're to train ourselves for godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. We're to what? Flee worldliness and we're to pursue godliness, 1 Timothy 6, 11. And Paul's going to really return to this idea in verse 14 because he notes we've been redeemed from all lawlessness, sort of getting, again, the negative idea, and we're to positively be what? Zealous for good works. Which means some of us need to get real serious about our relationship with God's word. It means some of us may need to continue to persist and persevere in prayer, especially when it's hard. It's why others may need to lean in more deeply to the fellowship of of corporate Christian community, to to the church and looking to one another to hold us accountable. It may mean that we need more than just the church as as a corporate entity. We need one another individually speaking into our lives, reading scripture together, reflecting on trials and struggles and, and where we're suffering and being honest about those things where the message in those meanings is not simply more discipline and more efforts, but we're bringing grace into those conversations and calling one another to what? To better hopes, to better loves, to better rewards. Because what God expects of us is not perfection, but it is a new direction. That's what he expects. He's not expecting perfection. He is expecting a new direction. Paul's helping us see that grace is not given 
because we've done good works, but in order that we might be able to do good works. We do not do good so that we can become God's people, as nearly every other religion teaches, but rather God makes us his people so that we now become eager to do good. So to put it another way, grace is not opposed to effort. Not at all. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Not effort, earning. The grace the Bible talks about, what I want you to see, it's about power. Power not just for salvation, but also for personal life transformation. Because who we are will determine what we do. So when the late uh, Queen Elizabeth, right, when she was just young, a little princess, and when she had to go to some kind of a national event or a party or some kind of gathering where she was going to be before others, her mother, as she walked out, would often say to her, royal children have royal manners. That was the common line that Queen, late Queen Elizabeth II, that's what she would hear from her mom. Royal children have royal manners. In other words, her behavior was to be in accordance with her birth. Now, status first, yes, but behavior ought to follow second. And friends, I think it's something like this in the Christian life. In Christ, we are members of God's royal family, members of the royal family, and he expects us to act like it, to act like we're part of that family. Genuine identity in Christ always produces conformity to Christ. Identity in him becomes conformity in him. That's the purpose of grace, salvation leading to transformation And Paul says, Titus, this is what you have to teach, verse 15. It's what you must do. Because I think Paul knows this kind of teaching is going to be met with resistance. You know, it's one thing to say, believe upon Jesus. That sounds great. It's another thing to say, and now go turn from all your sins. One seems easy. We know the other one is hard. The first time I was ever given a Bible and encouraged to read the Bible, I read the Bible and I thought, you know, this this Jesus calling us to believe, right, that... Okay, I'm not quite sure who he is, but that's one thing. But I understood to believe in Jesus means to walk away from sin. And I'm like, no way. That's A, hard, and B, I don't want to do that. We know that's difficult, but that's what genuine belief entails. It's why we must exhort or encourage, as Paul says. Exhort or encourage the true believers. That's what he says Titus must do in verse 15. But he also says you have to rebuke with all authority those false believers there in the church because they'll try to disregard you. They'll try to push you off to the side. Paul's saying, but don't let them because God's grace comes with a purpose, salvation leading to transformation. And anything less, Paul says, is simply not biblical grace. And thirdly, grace comes with a promise. Grace comes with a promise. The promise that Christ, verse 14, is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. And that one day, our blessed hope, as we read, 
will appear again in glory and return for his own. Part of what we're seeing this promise entails is that he's cleansing us while we wait for him to come back for us. And here's the thing. We tend to think salvation is all about us. And we think salvation's all what we get out of the deal, and that's not unimportant. But what we sometimes fail to remember is that salvation is not first about what we get. Salvation is about what God wants. It's about what his heart is after. And Christ wants a people for himself. Now, years ago, some of you know that MTV launched this, uh, this show called Pimp My Ride. It may sound worse than you're thinking, but no, it's where it, the creators took some rusted out like hunk of metal, this thing that once resembled a car, and they restored it and transformed it into something awesome. And that show is really popular. It led to a whole host of shows following it, right? Rust Valley Restores, Fast and Loud, all these shows. Later, they turned it to homes, right? Ten years later, what? You get Fixer Upper. You get Chip and Joanna Games. Well, at any rate, Paul's helping us see this is part of what Christ is about. Christ is about a massive restoration project. He is turning a jalopy of my own life and the jalopy, which is your life. I'm sorry, I hate to tell you that, but it is true, right? You're just limping along. It's not too pretty. All of us are in our sin. And he's turning that into something beautiful, And it starts, right, by dropping out that rusted engine, that thing that won't run, right? He drops that out and drops in this fire-breathing, fully-bored 454, right? It starts right there. We get the Holy Spirit. He does the chrome, right? Does the mag wheels, puts on a little Hearst four-speed. I don't know, whatever your, like, jam is, right? Some of you are like, I like an electric car. I don't know how to help with that. But at any rate, he's restoring us. That's what Christ is doing, Restoring us to what we were made to be. Not just restoring, but then collecting. This massive garage of magnificently restored vintage vehicles so Christ can delight in them. That's what he's doing. And Paul is really drawing here off this language we read earlier that Nicole read to us from Exodus 19. That God would have a treasured possession among all the peoples. Or Ezekiel 37, 23, that they will be my people and I will be their God. And notice how Paul now turns all that imagery from Israel to the church. The new Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. But just don't miss that expression. A people for his own possession. As in his treasured possession. The idea is that Christ's people... They are the crown jewel of all that he possesses. His people, the crown jewel, right? More valuable than the earth he's formed. More valuable than the universe he upholds. More valuable than even all the angelic host which perpetually sings his praises are his people. You and me. Not because of what we've done. Because we're Christ's. And because we're Christ, we're the jewel of God's crown. So some of you might need just to reflect on that this afternoon. 
right? You're feeling low, feeling forgotten, feeling helpless, wondering like, is this Christian life, is it worth it? Is it really all it's cracked up to be? And you need to remember this. And you need to rejoice in this. And you need to rest in these beautiful truths. Because of Christ, God delights in you. And he's coming back for you. And friends, it's that last bit that's so easy for us to lose sight of in the Christian life. So in college, I remember taking this great books course because in high school, I didn't go to a particularly good public high school in California. We didn't read much in the way of good books. And I was also kind of lazy. So like Faust and Don Quixote and the Brothers Karamazov, like those kind of books, those great classics of Western literature, I didn't really read any of them. So I'm like, okay, college, I'll take this great books course. Well, it ended with this French play translated into English, Waiting for Godot. Maybe some of you know it, Waiting for Godot. Some of you are like, Brad, who cares? Well, it was actually, that was initially written in French. It was voted, and it's been dubbed, the most significant English language play of the 20th century. Pretty big deal. And in this play, there are two men who are waiting by the tree. And these two men are waiting by the tree for a man that they've never met. And they don't know this man. And over several nights, these two men converse about the unseen Godot. And they're waiting for him. And days pass, and finally, a young boy arrives with the message that Godot can't come tonight, but he's going to come on the morrow, right? Tomorrow night. And yet tomorrow comes, and Godot doesn't come. In fact, he never appears. And the play ends seemingly with these two men having wasted their days without purpose, and then they're left debating different ways to commit suicide, right? So just wonderful French nihilism for you or whatever. Okay, like the characters in Waiting for Godot, we don't know when Christ will appear. But unlike those characters, we can be confident that he will appear because of his character, because he has been faithful to every promise. Just as Christ came first in humility, we are seeing in verse 13 that he will come again, what? In glory. He will come again in glory. And we can be confident of that, his first coming assuring his second coming. We can take those promises, so to speak, to the bank. It's not blind faith. The one who came as a lamb will return, friends, as a lion. Your Savior is coming for you. And he's already fixed the date. Right, The date's on the calendar, and every day it draws closer. It draws nearer. Christ is coming for you. He wants all of his vintage cars, and he wants them together with him. And he wants to delight in them, and he wants to rejoice in them. And he will take what he has begun, and he will complete it in you. He will have you as his treasured position, possession. And that is the promise of his grace. So notice there's a kind of push and pull in the Christian life. Living in this present age, we're kind of pushed from behind. We're pushed by the wonder of grace and how God has loved us in Christ. And we're also kind of pulled and we're pulled forward by what? By the hope of glory. By the hope of glory. 
So friends, I hope you've begun to see that grace, it is so much more than simply a baby's name. No, it's a great name. So much more than what we might refer to as style or elegant clothing. So much more than a a few words we utter before a meal or simply a passing advertising slogan. Grace is first about a person, not a theological system. It comes for a purpose, salvation and transformation. We have become in Christ royal children who ought to what live royal lives. And finally, it comes with a promise that he will cleanse us, purify us, while we wait for him to come for us. The grace that saved us, past, sanctifies us today, present, and secures us for tomorrow. Friend, do you know that grace? Have you received that grace? How will you practically live out that grace? Even this afternoon. Even this week. Let's pray.